Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Rate Specialists, Giles Gale, Head of European Rate Strategy, Blake Gwynn, Head of US Rate Strategy, and Theo Chapsalis, Head of UK Rate Strategy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Bondcast. A busy week of central banks this week, I would say. We had the Federal Reserve meeting in the US earlier on, and we've had a flurry of ECB speakers that have, have moved the market a little bit. So before we get into both of those, let's just have um, a quick wrap up of our, our latest thoughts from our rate strategist. So Blake, what are you thinking in the US today? Yeah, so thanks, Imogen. I mean, uh, what we've been seeing since we last spoke a week ago um, is continued retracement of some of this post-Georgia election sell-off. Um, I think part of that is due to the fact that, um, you know, we're starting to settle down into uh, uh, stimulus negotiations after Biden's uh, inauguration and those negotiations, um, I think, have, have shown to people that this process could be longer and more frustrating and, and have a lot more complication um, than people might have thought during that sell-off. Another piece is, is obviously related to the Fed. We had an FOMC meeting this week, um, continued discussion around, around taper. I think um, also kind of looking ahead, uh, people will be focused next week on Wednesday's Treasury refunding announcement Well, they'll uh, uh, announce their expected issuance for the next quarter. So I think those are kind of the topics uh, that, are, that are floating around in markets. We were, we're also seeing some, some equity sell-off that, that might be uh, uh, translating into the rates markets as well. Okay. And Giles, what about on the European side? What's the kind of mix of the moment this week? Well, I suppose you know, the same as um, you've just heard from Blake. I mean, we're, we, we've had some concerns about COVID uh, getting back in, you know, particularly in, in Europe, because there's quite a lot of pessimism about the way that the vaccine programs are being rolled out. There are a few negative stories about supply of vaccines as well, um, compounding that. So you know, we started off a little bit weak in risk, and that just um, you know, pushed yield levels down. Um, and then since then, we've been pretty much sideways. Pretty significant supply from, um, well, uh, lots of different areas, but most notably the EU. And um, I guess that in the other the other topic has been Italy, where you know, I guess we're in a bit of a holding pattern, waiting for a decision from um, Mattarella about how he wants to give a mandate to uh, to Conte maybe to uh, to try to stitch together a new coalition but um, no we're not expecting to hear how that's going until tomorrow okay so that's maybe one for us to discuss next week um so <clears throat> Blake let's start with you then on on the uh, US side like you mentioned the FOMC the the Federal Reserve meeting was was the big event of this week um wasn't super exciting i guess the expectations weren't huge for something that was going to be particularly market moving but do you want to just update us on on what happened and and what it meant for markets yeah yeah sure i mean it was the big event i think uh big might be a bit of a stretch uh we didn't really see anything in the statement change um they you know as expected kept rates unchanged didn't make any adjustments to the asset purchase program and i think it um at least in terms of the press conference, it largely followed along comments that Powell made um, in a pretty extensive interview he did just prior to the FOMC meeting. So we had recently heard quite a bit from Powell. So I, I don't think there was really that much opportunity uh, for surprise there, even though it was somewhat entertaining to hear him uh, uh, complete, you know, uh, uh, get repeatedly asked questions about some of the recent uh, volatility we've seen in 
in U.S. Uh, equity markets. So, so that was somewhat entertaining, if nothing else. Um, I guess if I had to pick out a few tidbits from, um, you know, from, from the press conference and, and what we learned yesterday, I, I did think it was notable the Powell um, is being very clear, I think, about how the Fed's essentially going to be looking through any kind of temporary bump um, or, or temporary bouts of inflation due to base effects or um, some short burst of activity that we see uh, as things start to get back to normal later this year. Um, you know, I, I think in some way this is just to help inoculate markets um, so that basically we won't overreact um, and, you know, spur some type of taper tantrum uh, uh, style event and start rapidly pricing in hikes if we get a few higher inflation prints this year. So I think they're just starting to, to, to um, really kind of hammer that message home. So when we do get the, you know, when we do get those base effects come in and stuff, people don't, you know, markets don't really o- overreact. Um, he also continued to push back against, you know, any pull forward of tapering or hike expectations. I think that was l- largely as expected. Um, and I think also this wasn't in the Powell press conference, but I thought it was at least somewhat notable that the New York Fed um, at the same time as the FOMC's statement um, announced that they'd be ending their regular term repo finance offering. So this was, you know, they were offering uh, month-long financing to uh, to counterparties um, through these kind of weekly operations. So they, they've ended that. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily a market-moving event. Um, nobody's really used that facility for several months, but I think it's notable because it, it does symbolize how the Fed's concerns um, around funding markets have basically flipped on their head over the last few months. Um, if you remember back in September 2019, we had this big repo blowout where repo funding rates uh, uh, spiked very sharply. Um, and then again, heading into March and April of, of 2020 with the outbreak of COVID, I think there was a lot of concern about funding markets from the Fed that basically rates would spike uh, and, and go much, much higher and cause some type of uh, financial stability risk. Um, now they're actually dealing, dealing with the opposite problem. They're not worried about a spike higher in funding rates. Um, funding rates are actually pushing lower and lower. We you know, had the SOFR repo benchmark this week dropped down to, to three basis points in the last few days. So, um, you know, really now they're worried about losing control to, to the downside. Um, and so I think, you know, kind of ending, ending these repo uh, operations while, you know, not, they, they don't have that much direct impact on market. I think it's at least uh, kind of a nice sign of how that conversation around funding markets has flipped at the Fed. Um, and I think that's about it, really. I mean, a lot of the other stuff, as I said, was largely a repeat from from the interview that he did uh, several weeks ago. Okay, so I just wanted to pick up on one of the themes that you mentioned was this kind of taper tantrum. Um, you know, what Powell's kind of specifically addressed that yesterday. He said that when it is the right time to taper, they will communicate this clearly, but but now is not the time. Um, it's a theme that markets have been discussing quite a lot, certainly in the first few weeks of this month when we saw that big um, rise in, in US yields. Do you think that his comments yesterday kind of put to bed that discussion? I know you um, have written a note on Agile Markets with the tongue-twisting title of Time to <laughs> a Tantrum Talk. Um, taper, so taper Tantrum Talk, yes, yes, correct. <laughs> so I'm guessing Nailed that it. you're hoping that, that markets can now move on from this, but, but do you think that's it or is there more to come? Yeah, I mean, I think when I wrote that, I mean, uh, what I really was interested in doing was just pointing out some of the differences between this taper tantrum and what actually occurred in 2013. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we can, uh, you know, we in the market can can get into this habit of, of using these big events and, and kind of n- nomenclature to 
uh, apply to any increase in yields. You know, if, if yields go up, it's not necessarily a taper tantrum. And I think we were kind of getting to that point of just describing those things. But I think the mechanics that actually drove the taper tantrum in 2013, um, you know, were pretty unique. I think one of the, the, the important factors about that move was basically that it was never really about asset purchases in my mind. Um, you know, if you look at where the rate moves were most uh, impactful, it was really in portions of the curve where the Fed was not buying a lot of securities. Um, so it, it was really, if it wasn't about the asset purchases, it was really about what the taper suggested to markets about when the Fed was going to embark on a hiking cycle. I think there was this idea that once they start tapering, it kind of starts this mechanical, you know, ticking time clock to when the first rate hike and the start of the hiking cycle would begin. And that's what really drove the taper tantrum is that markets went to, you know, went from pricing and essentially no Fed, no volatility to hiking and uh, uh, pricing in a hiking cycle uh, in a period of three or four months. Um, so I think that connection between rate hikes and asset purchases was, a, was one of the biggest factors that drove the 2013 taper tantrum. And I think kind of pulling that forward to today and, and, and how that impacts this discussion, um, I think one of the biggest focuses for the Fed over this next year um, is really going to be how do we uh, walk back from these programs? How do we communicate about walking back from these programs without sparking that same kind of market vo volatility or risking any kind of uh, financial stability uh, concerns? Um, so I think one way that they need to do that is uh, to make sure they actually communicate a lot about how asset purchases do not necessarily pretend a hike in the near term, right? Basically, repeatedly kind of telling markets like, hey, we, we may pull back on asset purchases at some point, but that is not connected to, uh, you know, to, to hikes in the Fed funds rate. Um, I do think that markets are probably already keen to that message. I mean, if you look back in 2013, markets were very, very wrong about how early that was going to happen, right? Um, you know, this kind of assumption that they were going to taper asset purchases and then immediately after there was going to start this hiking cycle. The hiking cycle ended up being um, you know, years after the uh, uh, um, actual taper started. So there was this big gap. And I think markets, having been wrong in 2013, maybe coming into this one, uh, are already kind of primed to put some distance between a taper and hikes. So maybe we don't have that same kind of price action. But I think still the Fed is going to be very, very careful and very diligent. And, and it's going to be a big focus this year and how they're going to communicate that taper without causing everyone to immediately start pricing in, you know, a, a hiking cycle. Um, but I still do expect that that's not something that really happens. The actual taper itself is not something that happens till 2022. Um, but I do think the more they uh, uh, kind of batter markets with this message of, hey, we may pull back on asset purchases, but we're going to remain uh, at low rates for a very long time until we're satisfied with, with uh, where inflation's at under our new flexible average inflation targeting regime. Okay. So communication really will be key for them. Yeah, um, absolutely. Switching over to, to Europe, then, we've had a lot of communication, if you like, from, from ECB members this week. Um, and actually, we've, we've almost had the kind of opposite message that, you know, we're, we're nowhere near to it. Not that the Federal Reserve is saying that they're close to a taper either, but we're clearly talking or bias towards further easing in Europe rather than less easing, or at least that's the message that the markets have kind of interpreted from the, the speeches and the interviews this past week. Um, Giles, can you kind of summarize what, 
what's actually happened and, and what we're thinking about it from here and, and where we think the market might have perhaps overinterpreted what, what has been said. Yeah, well, I was going to start by saying that I really, really look forward to the day that we can do a deep dive on the Bund tantrum and um, you know, draw parallels and people are going to find that interesting. But we're so far from that at the moment that, um, that yeah, as you say, it really seems like the pressure point that was discovered by Bloomberg this week was, um, you know, I guess, as I said in my initial comments, you know, it seems like people are losing a little bit of confidence about the uh, this recovery at the minute. Um, you know, that's the direction of travel um, of this week, at the very least. And you know, while I think that markets had been sort of progressively pricing out the possibility that the ECB could cut rates um, over the course of, say, the next year or so, um, there was a there was an interview with Klaas Knott, who is the governor of the Central Bank of the Netherlands and he is he's he's got a bit of a name um, you know as a good dutchman as being quite hawkish and um he he said that there is still room to cut rates and that was picked up um i, I can't remember exactly how uh, on the on the uh, on the headlines but um you know it it was read as no, we're seriously thinking now something by a lot of people in here. We're seriously thinking about you know, possibly cutting rates, and you know, I guess that that you know sort of taps into a suspicion that markets have. Uh, you know, that because we've had a uh, no, few months of euro strength as well, and the your ECB is really focused on financial conditions, sort of quite broadly defined, but you know, um, euro strength is generally considered to be negative for financial conditions in the euro area. And so, you know, perhaps that demands a reaction. And of course, you know, there are various ways that reactions can be, can be brought out. You know, you normally just expect people, as we or with not yesterday, um, you know, talking about the kinds of things that they could do, what we call verbal inter intervention. Um, you know, frankly, this kind of annoyed us. Um, you know, we read it as a bit of a non-story. You know, I mean, fake news, if you like. I mean, it was. You know, Klaus Knott's comments were basically a continuation of the line that has been you know, the ECBs for for months now, really. I mean, Lagarde in the press conference two weeks ago pretty much summed up, I think, the way that they, they want to communicate markets. And, you know, of course, they want people to believe that they can do everything. Um, and you know, what she said at the time was, all instruments can be adjusted and nothing is off the table. And, you know, I mean, there's, there was just continuation of that, really. It was followed up by you know, a, a fairly sort of empty story pretty quickly by Bloomberg, who once again seems to have identified that there was a bit of a pressure point and you no know, demand for, for more color from the markets, you know, <laughs> very clever like that. Um, but, you know, that didn't seem to us like there was a lot of extra content there. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it's really all about the ECB just kind of retaining that optionality that rates can go lower, but it's not to say that they're seriously thinking about lowering rates anytime soon. Um, 
you mentioned uh, about financial conditions and of course how the the euro plays into that um the message really from uh, the january meeting from lagarde was that financial conditions is now going to be their compass uh, her words not mine <laughs> towards their anchor of of price stability so um you know we worked together this week looking at what um what they could be thinking about when they're thinking about financial conditions um, and how they might be looking at this. Um, can you just run us through, I guess, what the main conclusions of, of that were about how financial conditions look now in the euro area and, and what that means for um, uh, policy going forwards? I certainly can. And in doing so, I can take credit for your work, Imogen. <laughs> Basically, the um the financial conditions. Yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of things that go into. I mean, and one of the things that uh, Lagarde was very, you know, very careful to make, make as clear as possible. And you know, I guess maybe the markets just didn't really get the message to the in the way that she was looking for. And she kept talking about you know, having this holistic view and you know, really taking into account you know, a very wide range of indicators, whereas the markets, you know, simple things, they just see the euro going up and you know, think that there might be a problem. I mean, the, the, the real conclusion from the, the work that we did this week um, you know, to sort of bring together lots of different indicators that we think that the ECB will be looking at was that they should be pretty confident about where they've managed to get financial conditions. And of course, things can go wrong. But at the moment, in spite of the strong euro, financial conditions look really, really quite easy. And so, you know, there's no clear sort of trigger to, to, to act here at all. And actually, I think one of the things that you know, needs to be highlighted, and, you know, this, and it was highlighted, for example, in the account of the minute, sorry, the account of the, the meeting, basically the ECB's minutes, where, you know, in, in, where they were talking about the euro. And of course, you know, it's, it's very obvious once you realize, but you know, the euro is only going up because, you know, or it was only going up at the end of last year because there was more recovery momentum um, and more optimism out there. And of course, the two things act in, in different directions when you think about what you want to do with rates. Okay, I mean, the recovery momentum kind of kind of implies that you're probably thinking less about rate cuts, whereas, you know, on the other hand, and it's frankly secondary to that, um, if that is pushing the euro up, then, well, you know, that in a sense is a quality problem from the ECP's perspective. So, you know, they're not pushing in the same direction at all, and I think that, that is something which is not being discussed enough. I guess that's important as well from from the perspective that we think about it in terms of you know bundles and things like that. If financial conditions are are relatively easy right now and their job is about preserving many easier if rates are to rise um, because of this confidence around the global recovery you know supported by the vaccine rollout etc then actually they're they're probably more willing to tolerate a, a slightly higher level of rates than than where we are now. Quite right, because it's real rates that matter, and this is the other, another thing that's often missed. But you know, you can put real rates into the um, into the mix, and you know that you know, that also is supportive for financial conditions. And you know, one of our key views for this year, um, it's not the subject for today, but um, you know, one of our key views is that inflation risks are skewed to the upside, and if that you know, continues to to be a a theme that markets sort of 
tap into, then you'll see real rates, that is nominal rates adjusted for inflation, um, staying stable, possibly even falling a bit. And that's not going to be bad for um, for financial conditions either. I will just say, since it's um, a story today, that um, inflation has leapt on base effects, fair enough. But um, I think that for people who don't watch these things as carefully as the as the experts, it's it's, it's always something that <laughs> that maybe maybe comes as a bit of a surprise when we have um, an, a move as large in the headline indicator of you know, as as we saw today with year-on-year inflation um, in Germany. So you know that is something which I think you know, is is worth continuing to watch over over the year. Yeah, and I I guess that's where um, the ECB will start to look more similar to what Blake was saying about the Fed. You know, we we think that this um, German print today paves the way for probably upside surprise in the euro area print next week. Um, But we do think that that, um, these are mostly temporary effects that that will um, allow the ECB to to look through those and and keep very easy monetary policy settings for some time. I guess that's a nice way to wrap up then, given it's given us some data to look forward to next week. Um, and I'm sure lots lots to discuss next week. But ju- just on the subject of the ECB, I will add that we should find out more about how they're actually thinking about financial conditions, or at least they will define how they're thinking about financial conditions closer to the March meeting. So we'll be watching that uh, very closely, but I'm sure something we can discuss nearer the time. Thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.